In your son's name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Scripture reading this morning will be from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. That can be found on page 4 in the Pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she has been taken out of man. Therefore... A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. We're thinking about being immersed this year, all year long. We've been thinking about just totally submissing our, uh, submersing ourselves or immersing ourselves into the will of God and being submissive to Him in everything. And we've been looking at various topics each month, and this month, We want to think about being immersed into relationships. We just do not live healthy lives if we cannot share in healthy relationships. But yet what the world is beginning to paint for us, pictures and portraits of of what would be healthy relationships, we have to push the pause button and we have to reflect and say, is this really healthy or is this a deception of Satan? And so this morning, I want to invite you into a study, and then I'd, I'd like for us to go deeper in one particular area of this study tonight, and I hope that you'll be able to come back and join us at 6 o'clock for this. Andrew Claven is a screenwriter and author of books, and Andrew is a man who grew up in a Jewish home in Long Island, New York. And he never, uh, as an adult, was able to uh, accept their traditions and their teachings, and he became agnostic. But then, living that life, he finally came to the point that he couldn't accept the fact either of being agnostic, and he discovered Christianity. And, and so, in, in the broad sense of the term, he has become a Christian that when he writes books, he loves to write about strong men in, in mystery-type novels and, and the movies that he's produced. But yet, at the same time, throughout his career, he has had a very difficult time succeeding with Hollywood. Even though he has a couple of films that have, have come out as a result of his books, he's had a rough time. And, and I was reading an article of his this past week. And he says, you know, there are a lot of mysteries, uh, television shows on TV. He says, but the greatest mystery of all is, is uh, where are the traditional families? 
And he mentions in, in examples that go back several decades. And he mentions father knows best and leave it to Beaver. And he says, now Hollywood is apologizing and saying that they were dishonest with the American people because we know that there were really no families like that. And so it was putting a very unrealistic view out to anyone who would be watching those shows. But yet a a decade or so later, the Cosby Show and Home Improvements continue to soar with equally good, if not even better, ratings. And yet when Home Improvement was pulled, Clavin says that he was setting in Hollywood ready to pitch a movie and he picked up a trade newspaper and he was reading in it and they gave this explanation out of variety. It says, I came upon an article declaring that even though home improvement was still popular and had won many awards, television executives have decided that they would no longer do shows about intact families. Now, one network decided to continue a show about intact families, and and that show was Seventh Heaven. As a matter of fact, not only was it a success in the early 2000s, but it was a great success all the way up to 2007 when it was pulled. But after that, you would struggle long and hard to find any television show with a normal intact family. And probably one of the last ones that America will ever know, unless it does, a tremendous change will be, will be seventh heaven. Of all things, not only was it an intact family, but it was a highly religious family and their faith structure was Christianity. And yet among all of its successes, Hollywood will not allow that to be duplicated today. As a matter of fact, recently he pitched a script to be used. He sent it to four Hollywood producers where all four met him at the same time after reading the first draft. And this is what they said to him after reading the first draft. By the way, this draft was was made up of a woman who was really dedicated to her husband and to her children. She loved them dearly. And it was a mystery type uh, movie or show or book. And, and, uh, and so they read this, and this is what these producers came back. They highly praised it, said it, very highly praised it. But then they said, and then he, he interrupts and says, I'm not making this up. And he puts back in quotes, he says, it's not realistic. There are no modern women like that. We wish there were, but there weren't. Now, he goes on and says, I know from happy experience that this is untrue, but I also strongly suspect that these four men are speaking honestly from their own experiences. They can't imagine any sort of world unlike theirs. Defining the family. We live in a culture that is redefining family. As a matter of fact, when we go to Dictionary.com, which is a source that many of us would use on a regular basis as a dictionary now. And this particular source, I'd like for you to look at the careful creating of a definition to be their first definition of family. A basic social unit consisting of parents and their children considered as a group, whether dwelling together or not, colon, the traditional family. 
Now, isn't that interesting that they crafted this so carefully that you don't know if the parents are married or not? They crafted it so carefully, you do not even know if the parents are male and female or both male or both female. They also very carefully put into this, they can be family whether they're living together or not. And in a sense, there is truth to that. But do you see what's happening here as they put a colon after that and put the traditional family? Friends, you're viewing families being redefined. It's all about us. It's in our media. It's in our dictionaries. And sadly enough, and please listen to this with compassion, it's in us. It's in our homes. It's in our experiences. Many of us here would know the pain of families not living up to the standard that God has created. Many of us have extended families that, that would fall in that very same category. And so today the idea is, is not to pile up on, on someone's pain, but can we do this? Can we agree upon this? If we cannot speak the truth about sin, we cannot speak the truth about a Savior. Truth is truth. And there will not be any community leader. There will not be any federal politician that will promote family. If it is not done from the pulpits, it will not be done across this land. We can look out and we can blame communities and we can blame political leaders. But I'd suggest to you that the greater blame lies upon us as preachers and us as Bible class teachers and those that are teaching children. We need to go back, if you will, to grassroots movements that go all the way back to Genesis 2. We'll do that in just a minute, but before we could, could I give you another challenge? You see, our problem is that today as a society, we're dealing with the challenge of whether or not we believe in absolute truths. In other words, if you don't believe in absolute truths, one definition of family is as good as another definition. And by the way, if you're talking about my family and if you're talking about my desire and my preferences, I would just as soon define my own likes and dislikes. And I don't want to hear your likes and dislikes because I might not agree with them. And so when you read the agendas of the homosexual agenda and other uh, organizations that are anti-marriage or either pro-homosexual marriages, you see these arguments where there is not an absolute truth that is with, upheld. Think about Jesus saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. When you hear Jesus praying to the Father in John 17 and 17, he said to the Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Sanctify, set apart. Families that follow the truth are going to be set apart. They're going to look different. They're going to be different. Sanctify them, set them apart. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word, the written word, thy word is truth. Jesus had no problem saying there's an absolute truth. It is in writing. You know how somebody will say something and they'll say, do you mind putting that in writing? Jesus came to this earth and he says, I am truth. And I have no problem while I leave. The Holy Spirit's going to be sent so we can put this in writing. There is an absolute truth. Joe Wells, in, in his latest book, Game Plan, he uses the illustration to illustrate absolute truth of, of dressing rooms. 
Have you ever noticed that, that dressing rooms, they do kind of tell the truth? How many of you have had parents or a spouse that you're about to grab something off the rack <clears throat> and you're going to go buy it? And they say, no, you go to the dressing room. I'm tired of bringing things back. What are they saying? We're going to say the truth about this. You think it's one kind of fabric, but what is it when it's on you? You think it's one size, but what is it when it's on you? You think it's long enough? You think it's short enough? You think it's not too tight? Or What, what are you thinking? You know what happens? It doesn't matter what you're thinking. When you go to the dressing room, the truth is told. I remember several years ago going to men's warehouse, and I had, I had a pair of, of uh, wool dress slacks that had worn out, but I loved them. I just loved those slacks. So I went there and I said, I'm pretty sure I bought my, my last pair that I'm wanting to replace. I said, they're Italian brand, and I can't remember uh, the name of them, but, uh, but I said, I know this, a 32 waist, and, and can you help me find these? And so this girl, she was so helpful, and she gave me, she said, I'm pretty sure this is what you're talking about. And I went in, I tried them on, I came out and said, no, this, this isn't the fit. This is not them. And so we went, and she said, well, why don't you try a 33? I said, I know it's not a 33. I've never worn a 33 in my life. It's a 32. And so I tried on then after that eight different brands of wool slacks, eight different brands. And, and so she's throwing them over the top, you know, and I keep throwing them back. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And so, so finally she tricks me. She throws one over and I literally threw, you know, you can picture this through the door. I'm talking to a stranger, you know, and, and I'm like, Hey, that's it. And she says, great. So I'm about to check out. I'm about to check out. And I say, by the way, where did you find those? She said, those were the first ones you tried on in a 33. <laughs> Listen, dressing rooms don't lie. They, they don't lie. You know what? You can say, this is what I want, so it must be truth. But you know what? Because you want it doesn't make it truth. You can say, this is what I experience. But just because you experience it doesn't make it truth. You can say, this is what I grew up around. But just because you grew up around it doesn't make it truth. There is an absolute truth. And when we talk about, I want to be a faithful Christian, when we talk about, I want to fully submit my life to God, what we're saying is, I want to look back to God in everything. 93% of Americans still say that if they had to choose a faith, that they would still choose the Christian faith. That's amazing, isn't it? 93% of Americans still would say, I would choose the Christian faith, or either I have chosen the Christian faith. But did you know that only 16% claim to make their decisions based on the Bible? Do you see that? Oh, yeah, I, I, I want to be a Christian. How many are saying, I believe that there is a written standard that I need to follow, and that's how I make my daily decisions. Now we drop many, many, many percent. And then... A little bit higher, but still so sad is the reality that only 35% claim that there is an absolute truth. Only one-third, only one-third of those that would claim a Christian faith believe that there is an absolute truth. Can you believe that? It's heartbreaking. And no wonder, as a society, we're, we're, we're failing and, and no wonder, even as religious people, 
When the world says, and, and granted, they can say this honestly, and it's not to beat up on us or anybody else, it's to make a point that is real. The world says, I really don't see much difference in a Christian family and a worldly family, so why would I want to become a Christian? Well, there's not many Christians that believe there's an absolute truth. And so they're guided by the same standard that the world is guided by. It's whatever is the latest push or plea or attraction or lust or desire. So that brings us to this idea. How do we define it? Hollywood's not going to help us. Looking just within ourselves is not going to help us. If we want to find families, if we want to find families, where would we have to go to find the absolute standard of truth? I'd like for us to go back to a text. And, I, and as we go back here, the main thing that I want to do today is give you a principle that I hope you make a part of your core belief so much, because it's straight out of the Bible, that any time you are tempted or someone is, temp, is tempting you to believe something that culture says about relationships, I want you to see that in this text, not only is this text given... But for the rest of the Bible, when these issues had to be addressed, the writers almost always went back to this text. In other words, I'm telling you, Old Testament writers went back to this text. Jesus Christ himself went back to this text. New Testament writers went back to this text. Christians today that believe in an absolute truth, they go back to this text. And so let's see again the text that was so capably read a few moments ago. Look, if you will, to Genesis, the second chapter. As you look at the second chapter, you'll see on the screen, we have uh, about 18, a little bit of verse 20, 22, and 23. I'd like for you to notice there in 18 where at the end of each day previously, God had finished creation saying, it is good. But now we have the first time in 18 that the, God, that the Lord God said, it is not good. And he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'd like for you to notice this phrase, I will make. In other words, there's something significant about us understanding that God is the creator. We are the creation. But then he says, I will make him. He's already made Adam. It's important for us to realize he made Adam as a male. I will make him, and who is he going to make him? A helper comparable to him. It's important for us to realize that God made woman different from man, but like man in the sense that she is human, but different from man in gender. And she is going to be made, notice in 18, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. He looked around at all of the animals and all of the rest of creation. And he said, I don't have a helper. And so God says, I'm going to make you a helper. I'm not going to make another Adam, but I'm going to make one that can help you. In other words, Adam was created for Eve. Eve was created for Adam. They're going to help each other physically, spiritually, socially, emotionally. We are designed in families to help each other. We do have different roles. We are made differently. But all of this is supposed to come together for the good of the family. 
And notice in 22, he made into a woman the rib that was taken from Adam. And look at 23, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I'd like for you to notice 24 now because this is the beginning, if you will, of a working definition that's going to be used throughout the rest of the Bible. When I said a while ago, Old Testament writers, Jesus Christ, New Testament writers, they all go back to this one verse right here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, you know, Adam didn't have a mother and father leave. So what is being said here? What's being said is, this is what I expect. I expect a home to be made up of a mother and a father. And they're, they're going to leave. He's going to leave whom? He's going to leave this mother and father to go where? To start their own marriage, to have their own home. And, and what is he going to do? He's going to be joined to who? A wife. He is going to be joined to a woman. He's going to be joined to a wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is Genesis, the second chapter. Did God give us this and then spend pages upon pages, book after book to say, by the way, human race, this is really an easy teaching. It's not only easy to understand, it's real easy to live out. No. If we said, what's the book of Genesis about? Surely most of us would say it's revealing the introduction to us of the patriarchs. That's where we read of Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's where we read of the lineage that Jesus Christ would be born through. And so the book of Genesis is important for that. But you know what else the book of Genesis tells us? It tells us over and over and over that getting family right is really, really, really difficult. You'd have to look hard, and I don't know if you could find a functional family in the book of Genesis. The next page in your Bible, we see deception coming into the family and Adam and Eve having to leave their home, the garden that God gave them. By the very next chapter in Genesis 4, we see polygamy coming in to God's perversing God's plan. God didn't want that with Lamech. But he introduced it to the human race. By the 12th chapter, we either see adultery or almost adultery with Sarah, Abraham, the patriarch, Sarah, and Pharaoh. And Abraham wasn't going to stop it. And apparently Sarah wasn't going to stop it. But yet that's the challenge that they were faced with. And by the 19th chapter, we see a very strong story of revealing the power of of homosexuality as a desire in the lives of individuals. In 34th chapter, we see the rape of Dinah. In the 38th chapter, we see Judah hiring a prostitute. And it ends up that that prostitute that he hired was not really a prostitute. It was his ex-daughter-in-law. And in the 39th chapter, we see Pharaoh's wife, As although this may sound strange, to be honest with the text, she was trying to rape Joseph. And it was a failed attempt. But it shows us her strong, sinful, lustful desires. Friends, if any of us think that we can put ourselves on a pedestal, say, well, I know what the definition of family is, and I'm glad that we don't have to worry about that. No, we need to go back to truth. And we need to allow God to define to us family, and we need to give our life to making sure 
that we understand it, and that the best that we can, we live up to it. For the next few minutes, I'd like to quickly take you through some passages and show you how each one of these goes back to Genesis 2 and 24. Now, you know that there's a lot taught in these passages that we can't reveal, but remember the point this morning that I really want to drive home is the fact for us to see that there's a principle that has never changed, and it goes back to Genesis 2 and 24. When Jesus, in Matthew, the 19th chapter, was asked, could could you divorce for any cause, in verse 3, he gave an answer. And what do you think he's going to do? Is he going to put up, is he going to lick his finger and, and put it up to the cultural winds and say, which way is the wind blowing? here? No, instead he goes back thousands of years to the Garden of Eden and he says to them, now think about it, they're asking a question for their day and time and notice how Jesus answers them for. He answered and he said to them, have you not read that he who made them, wait, that's what God emphasized in Genesis 2. I made you, that he who made them at the beginning. In other words, it's not a cultural matter today. It's the way it was done in the beginning. That's the way it's supposed to be done today, no matter what the culture is around us. Made them how? Male and female. And what does he quote? Have you heard this verse before? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where is the the continual clarity in the teaching? Notice the next phrase. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What's the teaching? Jesus, look, we just want to ask you a question about today. Can we divorce for any reason? And he says... I can answer this about today, but if you would turn back and read with me to Genesis, the second chapter, we all have the answer. How was it in the beginning? It doesn't matter what lies are being taught today by culture. Let's go back to the beginning. That's all that matters. Now, he does give us in verse 9 a clarifying teaching about what happens if our spouse commits fornication. See in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, accept for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Where did he go to establish this teaching? He went back to the beginning. When we look at the sin of adultery and we look today at modern methods to promote it. Uh, One institute of of marital uh, lawyers, uh, they did a research recently. It just came out in February of this year. And they said that now what they're finding is they're finding that one out of every five divorces that they deal with are linked to Facebook. Now, I would believe that it's much higher than that. But that's what they're finding in their studies. So are we saying that Facebook is sin? No. Are we saying that we have to have boundaries? Yes. There is an absolute truth that cannot be violated. If you're talking to someone other than your spouse that's of the same sex on a regular basis on Facebook, you're probably crossing some boundaries of wisdom. If you talk to the same person four, five, six days a week, 
you're developing a relationship that you shouldn't be talking about much more than the weather. Why? It's about absolute truth. Who are you going to honor? Who are you going to esteem? Who are you striving to build relationships with? Why not take that same time and devote it to your spouse and spend time talking with them? And if you want to talk about things deeper than the weather, talk about that with your spouse. Do we believe the absolutes, though? Because Satan will lie to us and tell us it's no big deal. It doesn't really matter. But when we see the end of this product, it matters greatly. Turn with me, will, to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, we see teachings not only as we just leave Matthew 19 about adultery, but we see teachings about fornication. And notice... We have again on the screen here at the top, Genesis 2, 24, because that's what he's going to talk about. And look at verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies were members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is... Wait, that's the language there of Genesis 2. Joined, and then notice the next phrase, is one body with her? You see, he's saying, I can tell you why it's wrong to be joined to a harlot or any other man or woman that's not your spouse. It's because that's only to be joined to become one flesh with your husband or with your wife. And so he says, two shall become one flesh. And notice 17, but he who is joined to the Lord. So now, you see, the idea is if we have that level of commitment, the others are going to take care of themselves. Is one spirit with him. So what's the answer of 18? Flee sexual immorality. So here we have the fleeing fornication. Is the house on fire? What are you going to do? Flee. Get out of it. Not just casually walk away from it. Run away from it because it's dangerous. What do we do? Flee fornication. How many times we see people flee fornication? Regularly. On a regular basis, we see people that say, I'm not crossing that boundary. And I'm running. Why? They understand Genesis 2 and 24. I'm not joined with that person. I'm not to become one flesh with that person. I'm not going to build a relationship that leans towards that. I'm going to flee from that. You see, today, we could take comfort in the fact that divorce rates have lowered to almost the beginning of the 1960s. And you remember, it was the mid and late 60s when they began to spike at an unreal rate. So you say, wow, we're doing good. In other words, in 1960, only 23% of the couples were divorced by the time their first child was 10 years old. And then that spiked, and that went that way for several decades. And now, in 2011, that number is back down to what it was in the early 60s. It's still only about 23%. You say, yes, our culture is succeeding. No, it's fornication now that's taking over. You know, if people today say, our biggest problem with the family is adultery and divorce... Don't get me wrong. Those are serious issues, but that's no longer our biggest problem challenging the family today. Challenging the family today is the attitude that marriage is optional and usually not needed. So now about 24% of all children are born to a woman who is living with a man. That's a higher rate than born to women who are single but there is no one else living in their house. And of this 24%, 20 more percent of them that are not in that category at birth, sometime in their lifetime, 
will live with their parent as their parent lives with someone else. So what's the point? The point is now marriage is viewed as optional. And it doesn't matter if you want to create a family and if you want to get married. Those are totally two different discussions. And obviously it presents problems. We're going to come back tonight and we're going to look at a few other passages. But especially tonight, we're going to look at one of the greatest areas. Uh, and We're going to look at an area where there's probably the greatest number of lies being told. And much of our time tonight is we're going to look at the topic of homosexuality. And we're going to address the lies that are being told. You know, lies like, do you know there's a gay gene? And some people are just born that way? Oh, really? Let's look into that research tonight and let's see, is there really a gay gene? We're going to see that it doesn't make any difference in children whether or not they grow up in a home of two fathers or two mothers or a mother and father. Does it really not matter? Does God say anything about that? Is there an absolute truth? But as we close and as we extend the invitation, I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. And I'd like for you to read something with me that's very comforting. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. This is comforting. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, I'd like to remind you that Corinth was a very worldly, worldly city. It was, it was like a port town where people were all the time coming in and out. And usually that's the place where sexual immorality is at its highest. And it's those kind of settings. And so there were a lot of things happening in Corinth. And so Paul goes in there to teach. And I'd like for you to notice what he says in verse 9 and 10. Do you not know? When Paul says that, especially in Corinthians, he's saying, you were supposed to know this. And so he's saying, didn't you know this? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Straightforward, isn't it? Very straightforward for a man who lived in a society that would have been many times worse than our society here in America. And so you say, at a time where people want to believe anything goes, what are we supposed to say? Paul's a good example for us. He says, church... Those things aren't going to fly in the sight of God. He's given an absolute truth. This is what's righteous. This is what's unrighteous. This is what God will accept into heaven. This is what God will not accept into heaven. And so say, is it doomsday for all those people in Corinth? Is it doomsday for us that have violated these things? Let's look at the very next verse, verse 11. And such were, past tense, such were some of you. Pause there for a minute. What was the church of Corinth made up of? People that had been homosexuals, people that had been adult, adult, idolaters, adulterers, and fornicators, people who had been drunkards. That's what the church at Corinth had been made up of. But notice they were. And then he gives the word but three times in a row to show the contrast. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified. And it's only in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God This morning, it doesn't matter what my past is, I can be washed, cleansed, clean, saved. It doesn't matter what my past is, I can be sanctified. I can stop living that and start living for the Lord. It doesn't matter what my past is, I can be justified. In the sight of God, it can be just as if I'd never sinned.
this morning. We need to go in the dressing room of truth. We need to allow God's will to prevail in our life. There's not anybody here perfect, but we all need to leave here saying, I want to go back to Genesis 2. I want to go back to verse 24. I want to go back to all that God calls us to be in families. If we can help you this morning as a church family, if you've never been immersed into Christ or you have and you want to come back home, we'd love to help you in any way that we can. Let's speak the truth about the sin so that we can speak the truth about the Savior. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.